I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hi, and welcome to yet another episode of All Things Policy. I'm Amit Kumar, a research analyst with the Takshashila's Institution's Indo-Pacific Studies program. And today, I'll be quizzing Anushka Sera, my colleague, on some trends in the Chinese People's Liberation Army's military drills and exercises at home and abroad. Welcome, Anushka. Thanks, Amit. Happy to be here. So, Anushka, your long-term project at Takshashila entails working on PLA, its personnel and its reforms. You must have looked at how the PLA has evolved under Xi Jinping's leadership and how it is using its military drills for power projection and preparedness. Can you give us a basic understanding of why we are observing an increasing focus on such combat preparedness and what steps have been taken to achieve it? Right. So under Xi Jinping, we see a marked overhaul of the PLA, which began with the introduction of his first set of reforms in 2015. Now, mind you, the reform of the PLA has been an agenda on the Communist Party's priority list since coming about of the People's Republic in 1949. And since uh, 1949, about 10 or 11 sets of reforms have already been instituted within the PLA. But since 2015 and 16, we're seeing a more concerted effort towards bringing policy to action. And this is because she was vice president under Hu Jintao, his predecessor, under whose tenure she saw grave corruption among PLA and the People's Armed Police leaders. And from there, as she took the helm, he began with a campaign, remove the old, the unreliable and the corrupt. And consequently, he instituted a series of reforms beginning in 2015, as I mentioned, and he made institutional and organizational adjustments to the Central Military Commission by dismantling its four general departments, which are namely the political, logistical, armament and staff, and restructured their mandates into 15 divisions, committees and offices under direct control of the main CMC leadership. I think Joel Vatno put it in a fascinating manner that the need for this arose from the fact that the general departments had become, and I quote, sprawling semi-independent fiefdoms with limited external oversight. Then we see the coming about of the theater commands instead of separate services, and the military region system was disbanded because the leaders of these seven military regions had barely administrative roles with no operational authority and oversight. Five theater commands came up, namely Eastern, Southern, Northern, Western, and Central. And the one India is concerned with is the Western Theater Command and its Tibet and Xinjiang uh, military divisions. Then there was other stuff too, like the reshuffle and reduction in force capacity, especially in the ground forces, to be able to give equal importance to all the three services and an additional rocket service. 
expansion on the focus to informatize and intelligentize the PLA and bringing of the armed police under direct CMC control instead of a joint state council CMC control, which also means greater control for Xi Jinping on the police internally. And of course, there was a greater emphasis on discipline and political loyalty through extensive training and mandated study sessions. And all of this has been geared towards achieving a few simply articulated goals. Building the PLA into a world-class force capable of fighting high-intensity, short-duration and regionally-oriented wars by 2050. And achieving the three modernizations of the military and police, which is mechanization, informatization and intelligentization. And the key engine that emerges as necessary to turn the wheels here is jointness among various services. Enhanced coordination, as anyone would understand, is key to bringing the mandates, the operational capabilities and the equipment capacities from the army, the navy, the air force and other personnel working on space, cyber and nuclear weapons together. So theater commands are one means through which the three conventional services under each command cooperate Another is the creation of the Joint Logistics Support Force and the Strategic Support Force, which assists all of these commands and services in joint ops. But the most important step is hitting the pedal on conducting more exercises and joint military drills, using varied equipment in varied situations and across varied terrains to be able to implement the policy of jointness on the ground and see its results in a simulated battlefield. As to the reasons why she may be seeing this as necessary, in addition to making the PLA more disciplined and proactive and less corrupt, is that China's threat perception has increased across theatres. We see a worsening of the border conflict with India and overall insecurity regarding the U.S.'s ever-expanding presence in the Taiwan Strait, in the South China Sea and the Western Pacific. Moreover, there is a chip on the Chinese shoulder to not be left behind, overcome all obstacles in its path to greatness. And this includes correcting historical mistakes and learning from others' achievements. Of course, these are not the only two elements that this comprises of, but two very important ones that emerge. So we see the former play out in how she wants to course correct from the humiliation China faced in, say, the war against the Japanese in the 30s and the 40s. And very importantly, she once said at a CMC meeting in 2014 that once military backwardness takes shape, the impact on national security will be fatal. And he said that I often read some historical materials of modern China. And when I see the tragic scene of falling behind and being beaten, it is heartbreaking. That's a rough translation. And so from there, we understand the push for the strengthening of the PLA. And the latter, which is to learn from others' achievements and be better than them, is seen in how the Chinese PLA draws lessons from, say, the U.S.'s deployment of GPS devices during the Gulf Wars of the 1990s. And there's an excellent book on this called Chinese Lessons from Other People's Wars. It's edited by Andrew Scoble and others and published by the U.S. Army War College. So yes, those are some motivations and steps taken towards combat preparedness. 
And of course, a lot of centralization of power is supposed to deeply discipline how the PLA functions as well, right? We have heard and read so much about the shift away from collective responsibility and power sharing in the CPC under Xi Jinping to an absolutely centralized structure. One person to praise and one person to blame too. So how does this play out in, in the PLA? That's true. She has induced a certain volatility in policy making because he has put too much emphasis on everything going through and coming from one person, which is she himself. And we see it play out extensively in the PLA. As I mentioned before, the need to exercise control over the PLA comes from Xi's understanding of historical mistakes, as well as the idea of becoming a leading military power with no corruption or inefficiency. So the dissolution of the general departments and direct control of the CMC leadership uh, over all of its dismantled parts and pieces reflects the centralization aspect. Of course, she has also donned the commander-in-chief hat uh, recently and he insists time and time again on his previous military and defense-related deployments, even if it was as a Mishu or a personal secretary to Gang Biao, who is a former minister of defense in the late 70s and early 80s. And now he's also promoting a lot of young guards who he can build into his own circle of loyalty in the PLA. I think Chung Lee of the Brookings Institution in the US has done quite a lot of work on this if readers or listeners will be interested in a deep dive. And the consolidation of power is also documented. Recently, for example, the General Office of the CMC reportedly issued a study and education plan for the chairman responsibility system of the Central Military Commission. And as usual, there are narratives in there that we're looking at every day. Like the plan, and I quote here, fully implements the spirit of the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China, thoroughly implements Xi Jinping thought on strengthening the military and clarifies the overall requirements, basic content, key tasks and organizational guarantees for the in-depth study and education of the chairman responsibility system. Correlated but equally significant virtues that are highlighted therein include that the military officers are required to be absolutely loyal, absolutely pure and absolutely reliable and to obey the party central committee in all actions, the central military commission and chairman Xi's command. And no one knows what pure means, but if you're an officer in the PLA, you got to be it. And in Xi's own words, the chairman responsibility system of the military commission is the fundamental system and fundamental implementation form for upholding the party's absolute leadership over the people's army. So a little about CRS. So at its 19th party congress in October 2017, the CPC decided to enshrine in the CPC constitution that the chairperson of the central military commission assumes overall responsibility of the work of the commission. Before that, in November 2012, revisions made to the CMC working rules also stated that the CMC must thoroughly implement the CRS, replacing the idea that vice chairman took the lead of overall and day-to-day -day affairs of the CMC and the military forces, as is the case under Hu Jintao and Jiang Zemin. And so that's how we're seeing uh, centralization and consolidation of power play out in the CMC and the PLA. Right. So you mentioned that the military drills, they play a key role in sort of overcoming any shortcomings in 
preparedness and uh, seeing how doctrine plays out on the ground. So what kind of exercises are we seeing being conducted? And if you could also tell us what are some of the important implications the PLA and the CMC are drawing from them, if we have data on this. So there is a range of military drills and combat preparedness exercises the PLA conducts at home. And these range from conducting sorties over the South China Sea, plateau exercises in Xinjiang and Tibet, and other equipment testing drills. I find the PLA Daily, the news platform for the Chinese military, indispensable for accounts on this. For example, an article that appeared in the PLA Daily on 14th February discussed details of a combat training exercise conducted in Karakoram, which is a division of the Xinjiang military region, in quote-unquote early spring, and they didn't specify a date. And attack drones were used to practice combat in the plateau region. As I mentioned, they use diverse equipment across diverse terrains. And it is interesting to note that this particular article highlights how the plateau exercise failed due to poor communication and coordination between the ground and air forces. And it quoted the party committee of the division saying that only by organically integrating various combat elements of combat forces and combat units to improve synergy can we truly form a land-air joint force. And so the acknowledgement that despite the adoption of various elements of modern warfare across combat units and services, quote-unquote true integration hadn't fully been achieved and was looming large. Another interesting observation made in the article was that, and I quote here, during the exercise, the battle became fierce and many hidden fire powerpoints of the enemy were stubbornly resisting and the attack of the division's front attack unit was blocked. And in the command post, the ground and air staff members jointly studied the enemy situation and a staff officer of the division proposed to call the air force to carry out precision strikes on the enemy firepower points. However, this strategy was apparently objected to by a staff officer from a certain Air Force department as he called instead for the use of firepower from ground forces to deal with the enemy in complex terrain. And this suggestion was ultimately adopted by the commander and the target was successfully destroyed. And so this story building and this knowledge of PLA training methodology of techniques of cooperation and coordination both between units and services and between forces in command control versus those on the ground and of mental models of adaptation to destroy the enemy can be helpful to both military observers and practitioners alike. Similarly, and more recently on 22nd February, another article appearing in the PLA Daily discussed details of an exercise conducted by a brigade of the 73rd Group Army on subject of paired training and coupling of combat training. So again, across these exercises, we're seeing an emphasis on jointness and multi-domain operations. And this exercise was conducted sometime in early February. And what is interesting about this one is that it focused more on simulating actual on-ground combat and confrontation instead of just running equipment checks or conducting isolated training. And the article recognized that the lack of hands-on experience in joint fighting capacity is a shortcoming and a weakness of the PLA that the PLA itself was unclear about. What is also interesting is that the division of work 
was quite elaborate in this newly constructed brigade battalion structure in the PLA. And apparently in one part of this particular exercise, a radar reconnaissance company and an electronic countermeasures company from the brigade competed. And so while the latter was instructed to send out regular electronic interferences as a deception tactic, the former was supposed to lock in on the target by clearing what we refer to as the electromagnetic fog. And so this exercise was also deemed a failure because of the long time it took. And this leads us to the conclusion that practice battles are becoming and will continue to become an important trend to observe for those interested in studying the effectiveness of PLA reforms and joint operations. And I think I remember reading somewhere that they're becoming as real as they come with the PLA personnel actually attaching pain stimulators to themselves to be able to feel what it is exactly like in a real confrontation situation. So that's the kind of preparedness they're working on. And that is, however, not to say that they do not talk in great detail about their successes and bravery as well. For example, on the 20th of February, the Chinese Ministry of Defense published a release discussing the feats and achievements of the H-6K bomber and its pilot for the 14th China Air Show, which was held in December last year, whose captain Chen Jial. The bomber flew over 5,000 kilometers during its reported seven-hour test flight. It conducted sorties over the contested Spratly Islands in the South China Sea. And the H-6K bomber also possesses uh, nuclear load capabilities and has the wherewithal to attack, say, a U.S. carrier battle group in the Pacific. And so in this release, Chen Jial was also quoted as saying that in combination with fighter jets, early warning aircraft and other equipment, we have jointly carried out live fire drills in subjects like long range raid, fast maneuver and systematic strikes, so on and so forth. And then the article sort of uh, went rambling about how Chen Jial is excellent in physical exercises and he can run 3000 meters in 11 minutes and do 30 pull-ups at one time and he's still not satisfied. And then there were some lessons for him and his comrades in arms in specific to draw and everyone else in general that as long as you dare to fight, you have a chance to win. So that's the kind of success and achievement related narrative the PLA and the Ministry of Defense runs. And other usual engagements and drills are around equipment. So recently, soldiers assigned to a communications battalion under the PLA rocket force used a mobile command system to establish wireless communication in freezing conditions. So this was an exercise they conducted in a bid to enhance their field communication and supportability. And it also shows the breadth of terrain and temperature that they are working with. So yeah, that's something on what recent trends tell us about the PLA's endeavors to achieve multi-domain joint ops capability. So indeed, uh, there is information on both the successes and failure of the PLA on the battleground. And interestingly, the PLA is broadcasting it themselves. At least uh, what it wants to or thinks is necessary and enough. So that is domestically. And of course, China for many, many years uh, has been part of uh, multiple army, air and naval exercises, bilaterally and multilaterally. But apart from those, what are some of other engagements the PLA undertakes abroad that may enable it to reflect its capabilities? Right. So indeed, China does engage with multiple countries on 
the joint exercises and interoperability front. And it recently participated in naval exercises like MOSI uh, off of the coast of South Africa and Amman in Pakistan. And it also participated in sailing games organized by Sri Lanka and the International Army Games Russia used to organize annually until recently when resources kind of got diverted in other military endeavors. But what we perhaps miss out on is the PLA's participation in peacekeeping forces abroad and what they say about how the PLA reflects its newly acquired and earned capabilities. And these happen very frequently, often under the supervision of UN officials and leaders of particular peacekeeping missions. So, for example, sometime in the end of January this year, the 26th Chinese peacekeeping medical contingent to Congo, this is the Democratic Republic of Congo, was inspected for the first time since its deployment under the UN stabilization mission there. And the inspection was an operational effectiveness test on combat readiness and training, medical support, epidemic control and prevention, and so on. And the contingent apparently passed with high standards. Similarly, in early February, the 13th Chinese peacekeeping level 2 hospital in Wau in Sudan also went through its first equipment inspection in 2023, and this was also organized by the UN mission in South Sudan. And so the UN mission's 11-member inspection team reviewed their performance in on-site demonstrations with vehicles and other equipment, and there were about 800 items across eight categories tested, I think. And again, since they passed the demonstration inspection, it goes to show their readiness both for battle and humanitarian support in conflict-ridden territories abroad. And the home base also invests in this through updated equipment. So for example, the 13th Chinese peacekeeping contingent in Mali recently received a deployment of new mine-resistant ambush-protected type vehicles with the purpose of providing protection from roadside bomb explosions in the Gao area. So one thing the PLA does abroad is that they study the specific requirements of their area of deployment and then they make changes to the force and the equipment accordingly. And China started its mission in Mali in 2013 with just a guard unit, and it restructured it into a base defense unit last year itself. And now the MRAP vehicles are supposed to equip the contingent with better patrol abilities, given that the vehicle itself is equipped with anti-improvised explosive devices protection, defense against electronic interference and other observation capabilities. And the PLA also send their equipment and representatives for international defense exhibitions and shows. And that's just power projection. Recently, they sent their 052 uh, D-type destroyer class ship, which is the Nanning, to the Naval Defense and Maritime Security Exhibition in the UAE. And the Nanning is a ship from the Kunming class of Chinese destroyer ships. And its latest deployment is as part of the 43rd Chinese Naval Escort Task Force in the Gulf of Aden. And this is another international arena the PLA Navy especially works on, which is counter-piracy in the Gulf of Aden off the coast of Somalia. So, yeah, those are some interesting areas abroad the Chinese PLA works on. Interesting indeed. And so to achieve these high-end objectives, the CMC and the PLA must also be looking at high-quality personnel. I mean, uh, we are seeing an extensive discussion on high-quality growth and development in the economy sector. Are we seeing a similar narrative play out on the personnel and talent front in the PLA currently? That's a great thought. Like I mentioned before, the PLA has focused on doing away with the old, the corrupt and the unreliable. 
There is also a focus on promoting young guards that are active and politically loyal. More than that, to be capable of achieving high-end goals, as you put it, uh, you need capable personnel equipped with the right know-how. Which is why as the first round of military conscription has commenced in January uh, for this year, official directors on the subject of conscription have began setting expectations for the type of applications they're most looking forward to. And as per a teleconference on conscription that was held in Beijing around uh, mid-January, officials highlighted that the focus is on recruiting college graduates, especially those who have degrees in science and technology related fields like chemistry or engineering to create a combat ready world class military force. And I think they're also providing some benefits and some um, extra points to the applications that come from such college graduates who have degrees from either civilian or military institutions or those who have already served in deputations abroad or those whose parents have been involved either in the military field or in science and tech, or they've been professors. And this message needed to kind of resonate at the provincial levels uh, because people will be applying for conscription from, from everywhere from the grassroots. So even at the first meetings of the provincial party committees with the PLA and the PAP delegations stationed in their respective provinces, almost all party secretaries laid emphasis on strengthening the army through science and tech and through talent. So I think uh, Zhang Shanji, who's the party secretary for the Anhui uh, Provincial Party Committee even said that to build a world-class force, we must insist on equal emphasis on quality and efficiency, give full play to Anhui's advantages in scientific and technological innovation, further improve systems and mechanisms and strengthen project and talent support. But like I said, above all, the most important is unwavering commitment to Xi Jinping thought, the spirit of the 20th Party Congress, and the two safeguards in the two establishments. So yes, we do see a conversation on quality and skilled talent play out. And it's equated, if not overshadowed, with a conversation on political loyalty and upholding Xi's supremacy. Interesting. I guess it remains to be seen of which one forms the highest ground of judgment if it comes to it. Although under Xi, I think we know the answers to that. And now I believe I have uh, one final question for you. Why do you think, and if you do, that it's important for an Indian audience to study the functioning of the PLA? I think that's a very important question to answer in the current context and a difficult one as well. So China is India's priority theater of concern, especially on the military front. And as the situation across the LSE has deteriorated, especially since the Gulwan Valley conflict, India is ramping up personnel and tech deployment along the border and is also taking economic measures to deter China. And this is all the while acknowledging that China is a much bigger power militarily and economically. And so all reforms and joint operations capabilities being developed under the PLA should be studied in India with the strategic goal of understanding what lies ahead for the future of India-China relations. May it be in a potential conflict on the border or in the shaping of the larger regional order. And so a few years ago, General Prakash Menon argued for Takshila Institution that even India should invest in joint theater commands and multi-domain operations capabilities, uh, not just to be able to counter China, but also the more threatening China-Pakistan nexus. And so that's how we're also drawing lessons from China's revolution in military affairs for our own. 
And if a reading of Chinese strategy on practice battles and talent can help us understand how to prepare better ourselves, it should be undertaken. And not just by the government, but by academic circles and laypersons alike. Similarly, an understanding of China's military cooperation with other countries or the work done by its foreign deployed personnel in peacekeeping troops, for example, can not only enable us to gain some lessons for our own foreign defense interactions, but also compete with China in the partnerships we both hold so dear in the global south, in Africa and South Asia. But this one is perhaps too ambitious and maybe for us to consider much later. That's all. Makes sense. I guess I should have asked this question in the beginning of the episode itself. But anyway, thank you, Anushka. That was a great chat. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of All Things Policy. Thank you, Amit. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.